If you're just tuning in, this is the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on Guadalupe Radio Network. We're about to bring in Dr. Michael Fake um, to talk about God and technology. To be part of the show by rendering your comment or question, I invite you to call into the show at one 757 9424 That's 877 877- seven five seven nine four two four or you can tweet at me at hashtag dlg on grn that's david l gray dlg on grn for guadalupe radio network that's hashtag dlg on grn or if you're my age again that's pound sign all right i know some of you haven't caught up to 2021 it's fine i'm um, just push pound sign dlg on grn but if you're listen if you don't know what a if you know what a hashtag is you probably you're you're probably not on twitter so you're probably not the person i want to talk to um, also, just comment on a video we're streaming on Guadalupe Radio Net- Network on the Facebook page. Last week, we discussed how big tech and deep state had joint forces to usher in a quasi-communist state, which has led companies and individuals being deplatformed and people being blacklisted from employment, publishing opportunities. So we turned this week for some theology, to give some theology, some theological application to this troubling turn of events. Uh, we're bringing in Dr. Michael Fake. Dr. Fake published a paper entitled God and Technology, which relates to the philosophy of Martin Hedger and the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas to overcome um, the um, technological attitude pervasive in, in society today. So welcome onto the David O. Gray Show, Dr. Fake. How you doing? Doing well. Um, I, this, I, I have to say, if I, if I can first... Make your head explode. I just want to say, Dave, you're my Chick-fil-A. <laughs> That's an overkill. I mean, my, my brain just exp- I mean, there's blood everywhere. You can't see it. <laughs> did, did you like that one, Tasty Cakes? All right, good. <laughs> um, disclosure, um, Dr. Okay. Fake was my professor <laughs> at Ohio Dominican University where I earned my master's degree in theology. So if you don't like my approach to theology um, or you don't like um, how – how why they even gave me a degree in theology here's the guy you that's need his fault. To, yeah, his, yeah <laughs> this guy you need to hey. blame <laughs> yeah that's my fault sorry <laughs> so he just kept talking and talking and talking like just just write it down and we'll give you a degree and uh, that's the end of that please <laughs> what type of student was i back then was i, I mean, what did you think of me when i first you know, showed up in class <clears throat> um i i'm just Here's another sucker we got. No, um, uh, no, I mean, you're a pretty good student. I mean, you know, this is the thing. You actually took things to a degree that, you know, like, yeah, you're internalizing it. All right. You know, so there were some of the folks that were, you know, just out of undergraduate, and they're like, yeah, I'm just going to continue on doing what I did. But, I mean, you had some world experience. You've been out in the world. You've, you've seen a few things, and, um, and you can, you know, you brought a certain reality to it. You, you were there because you wanted to be there. You were there because, you know, there's a – there's something you're going after. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I really like, you know, sort of the non-traditional students, you know, someone mm-hmm. that's actually been out there and they want to come back and, and, and they know exactly what they want. You know, they were, they're trying to get it. And so, I mean, you were instrumental in kind of shaping what you wanted to do your work on, what I want, I want to do my paper on this. And it was always slightly different, <laughs> uh, but it was good, <laughs> you know, but it was good because everybody else is saying, I, you know, I want to say, you know, let's see, uh, you know, what's the, the, the place of virtue in Thomas Aquinas. Okay, you can do that. 
<laughs> along with a thousand other people. Right, right. Well, I appreciate uh -oh. that. And thanks for um, um, appreciating that, you know, you had old people in your class. Um, oh, yeah. So. Old, yeah. Old people. Yeah. Old <laughs> folks. Well, actually, we did have some some older seasoned yeah. citizens that might not know what the hashtag is <laughs> uh, or the tic-tac-toe board or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, but you, you graduated from Duquesne University in 2011 with a master's degree in theology. And then you went on a Ph.D. A Ph.D. That's from Duquesne. But before that, your undergraduate was in, from the University of Dallas. Well, for master's yeah, I got I, yeah, I got my master's in theology from University of Dallas and my PhD from Duquesne. In systematic and, theology, right? Yeah, systematic theology. And yeah. before that, I got a master's in engineering. Yeah. And then before that, a bachelor's in engineering. So I, you know, this whole change of venue is is pretty common. And yeah, so, so how, I mean, that's. So how does one go, no, go from an engineering degree to a degree in systematic theology? How does that How does that happen? Well, I really just did it for the money, but no, actually, um, a lot of people look at me like, what? No, I mean, it, it was a calling, you know, for one of those things that that's something that's that, uh, you know, at the time I was doing this, I was doing um, CCD or PSR, whatever you want to call it, Sunday school type stuff with the little kids, the fourth graders. And uh, and then when I finally got, you know, the the big job after graduating with the master's in engineering, uh, you know, with, with Michelin and, and doing research on, on making tires, <laughs> Um, I started doing you know, high school youth ministry. They, they, they needed somebody to do high school youth ministry. And so I was like, I don't know, that's teenagers. And I remember me as a teenager and I don't want to deal with me, but there we go. So they, they invited me over and, and I just started, you know, Hey guys, I'm your run of the mill Catholic. Don't know a whole lot, but it was just when the catechism came out, the new catechism, 93 okay. published okay. in English. And so, you know, me as a single guy and I figured, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this right. So I'm sitting it's in South Carolina. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Columbia, South Carolina has the perfect weather. Hmm. You know, it's always somewhere hovering around 80, no matter what. And so <laughs> I'm sitting out, you know, it's Sunday. I go to mass, come home, get a nice, you know, get some sweet tea. And I get on my hammock on the balcony of my apartment. And I sit back and I read the catechism for a while. You know, it's one of those things where I would love to do that right now. But unfortunately, i I'm no longer a single guy, no longer have the apartment in South Carolina. Right now I'm in Ohio watching it snow yeah. um, and five kids running about the place. So, but I mean, it's one of those things where you, you just, you started reading it and it draws you in and these teenagers have questions and they keep asking questions. And I knew how to research. So I figured let's just research something else. And when I started doing that, it caught on uh. and I started, you know, doing talks and, uh, I got with a, a, an absolutely wonderful group called Family Honor doing chastity education, yeah. uh, and they're they're still in play and they're still doing great work. So um, I think they've made the switch over to doing some virtual stuff because of COVID. Mm -hmm. But that's you know if you ever want a really good group, you know Family Honor is, is still probably one of the best I've ever worked with. And so all of this kind of led to uh, you know maybe I shouldn't be doing engineering. You know, people are talking to me and they're, they're, they're paying to hear me talk on the faith, which I thought that's kind of silly. I got an engineering <laughs> degree. I better get an, I better get some kind of credentials behind me before I go and take anybody's money to hear me. Yeah. And so I did, I quit, I quit my job and, um, went to university of Dallas and, uh, I, it's a wonderful school. It, it was just what I needed. It was that sense of a classics education, uh, with really great, you know, uh, theology. The people there were great. The Cistercian monks there were, oh, 
I mean, that's that's a resource that I was just so amazed to tap into. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's just, and that's just, I mean, it was a calling. That's just it. After I thought maybe masters, maybe I'll teach high school. Who knows? I don't know. But went on to PhD and you know was a college professor for for quite some time in various places. And now I kind of settled down here in my wonderful snow-capped Ohio, and, <laughs> and, you know, living that's the right. life. So you were a, you were a cradle Catholic who didn't. You you describe your up until the time you actually picked up the catechism, your formation was just routine, just kind of average. Would you kind of get? Yeah, it was it was that typical seventies eighties catechism. So it really wasn't worth that much. Okay. You know, this is that that situation where it's you know I, I remember in second grade we thought oh God is love, and then by the time I got to eighth grade oh God is love, let's make a felt banner. Oh great. <laughs> Uh, and so I was like, you know, that's the, and, and at one point I realized this was, this isn't doing what it's supposed to do. I'm not getting from this, what I should get from this. Right. I, I mean, I can, I can remember the day I left the church and it was when I was probably 14 mm -hmm. or so. And I was, we were at Sunday mass and they were having a baptism. And so they allowed this bizarre liturgical dance. Oh. And there were these, there were these, yeah, there were these five, 16-year-old girls in leotards dancing around the altar and stuff like this. And, and I'm, you know, I'm a 14-year-old boy watching 16-year-old girls in leotards <laughs> dancing. I'm not thinking churchy thoughts. And I thought, this is, this is wrong, and this is, this is messed up. And it was stuff that they would commonly do. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, and it took – it was until I got to college that really I found some people that, that had sort of grown up in a in – a, in a well-catechized group, you know? okay. and they sort of brought me back and started going to mass in college, and and that just started this slow, slow burn yeah. to get me to where I am today. Yeah. yeah, glory to God. I'm so glad you um responded to the call, um, and I'm excited to be talking about your, your paper here, God and Technology. <clears throat> like I said last week, we're talking from a more a perspective, mm -hmm. so I'm glad to insert into this conversation some more of theology. Now, you're going to be talking a little bit about um, Thomas and Aquinas. Do you consider yourself a, what they call a, a, a Thomas? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I am. I am this, there's a, probably throughout the, the 90s and into the 80s, there was this group of people, they're sort of, I don't know, they're not neo-Thomists, because that's a whole other branch of things, but uh, I, I like to get back to the original Thomas Okay. But I'm also fascinated by, you know, uh, phenomenology. Um, and one of the things that for me was, was, uh, was helpful in this was uh, John Paul II, you know, Pope St. John Paul II was this great theologian and philosopher. And the more I read him, the more I realized he was a Thomist, but also was into phenomenology. He knew about these, he knew about Martin Heidegger. He knew about Husserl. Uh, and things like this, these founders of a movement that was really playing into the postmodern philosophy that was sort of taking over the 90s and the 2000s uh, as, as the dominant philosophic attitude. Yeah, the, and define, so I define kinda, phenomenology for the layperson. Uh, phenomenology is this, is this it's, a, it's a, a technique and, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> defining it's going to be difficult because you'll get different philosophers that'll have different things. But it's this technique of getting to the very thing in of itself through the phenomenon. So the okay. way it presents itself to me, I look at it. And so, you know, one of the things I remember a professor at uh, University of Dallas was talking about phenomenology and he had the phenomenology of a mailbox. 
And it was quite literally, how does the mailbox present itself to you? And you kind of do that philosophical, um, you know, analysis of, okay, really, let me get down to what am I seeing from this? I look at it, I, you know, the various senses, I get data on it, and then I make assumptions about it and things like this. So it's a, it's a way of getting at the heart of the thing by taking what it, what it gives to me. You know, it gives me its color, its shape, its size, all that kind of stuff. So with, with phenomenology, you know, the idea is to, to not start from a metaphysical basis. Mm. Well, just for my, for my dissertation, I actually put Thomas Aquinas in dialogue with phenomenologists for the sole purpose of, I want to get the whole picture. You know, I want to get not only how it presents itself to me, but I want to get it in its, in its metaphysical, you know, at the heart of it. So that's, that's kind of what I've done with, 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 with that paper. It's been since, I think it's 2016 that was out. Uh, it was first published, and and uh, the dissertation was the same was the same way. I'm 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 putting people in dialogue to truly get an understanding of of what it means and how we can come to an awareness of God. And, and so and, I, I and in this paper we're going, we're leading up to a break here about the bottom of the hour. So okay. we're talking with Dr. Fake here about his paper God and Technology. And could you? Before we head into the break, just just kind of like give a general taste of, of what we're talking about here, because you're putting Aquinas and and Heidegger into conversation here about God and uh, technology, and, and so what's going on here? Well, the first thing I'm looking at is, uh, you know, you want to get this phenomenological. How am I how am I facing technology? And one of the key things that Heidegger does is it's not about technological things. It's not about your iPhones and the computers, but it's about an attitude. And that's what, uh, that's what I talk about, the technological attitude. And this is an attitude of possession. It's an attitude of you. other things exist for, for me, in a sense, for me to put in as reserve, you know, kind of in the way that we'll – and I, I mentioned one of the things there, we store up electricity – from a river. So I look at the river now as a source of electricity. So it's a source of me getting something from it. So this river doesn't exist in all, in all this beauty with the fish and everything. It exists to give me electricity hmm. so I can get my lights and get my disco ball going at night when I'm having the dances. <laughs> That's why it exists. You know, that, so what I'm, what I'm seeing is, is through this technological attitude, it is a way of defining everything, but it's redefining everything as something that is exclusively for my use. And so that's where, that's where this whole attitude starts. Okay. And I think, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put Thomas Aquinas saying, well, let's, let's, you know, let's find the root of where things actually come from. Hmm. And Heidegger does some of this work, but he's, not, he's never quite fully there because he doesn't want to do a theological project. He wants to do something purely philosophical. So he stops short. Uh, and I think that's 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 one of the shortcomings I think of his work. He stops short of that. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, this is this sounds really exciting. So when we come back, <laughs> I want you to introduce us to Heidegger, and then we'll we'll jump into more of this interesting conversation. I'll talk to him. This is David O. Gray show, voicing truth and reason on Guadalupe Radio Network. Conversing with Dr. Michael Fagg on God and technology. Come back in after the break. I want to hear back from you. 
David L. Gray is joining the GRN's program lineup. This is Lynn Oswald, president of your Guadalupe Radio Network, with another GRN Family Minute. For 10 years, David L. Gray has built an audience on his YouTube channel, discussing the pressing issues and concerns of our day, all from a Catholic perspective, with unique style, humor, and personality. You can catch David's show, Voicing Truth and Reason, live across the GRN each Wednesday at 4 p.m. Central Time. You can also watch him on our live video stream. Just search Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter for at GRN Online. He leans heavily into Dominican spirituality and the importance of the constant pursuit of a deeper and fuller understanding of the truth. David L. Gray's conversion to the Catholic faith helps to facilitate some of the most interesting conversations on Catholic radio today. We are excited to welcome David to the GRN team. Voicing truth and reason is just one more reason why the Guadalupe Radio Network is truly radio for your soul. Welcome back in to the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on Guadalupe Radio Network. We are conversing with Dr. Michael Fague about God and technology to be part of the show. By rendering your comment or question, I invite you to call in to 877-757. 9424 again as 877 757 9424. You can tweet at me at DOG on GRN. Um, so Dr. Faye, before we went to the break, you were introducing us to uh, Michael Heidegger. Um, tell us more Martin. about what's his background. Well, Martin Heidegger, Martin I don't Heidegger. know who Michael is. Michael Heidegger is probably his little brother, <laughs> he does some stuff too, I think. But Martin Heidegger, I mean, he's a German philosopher and uh. Uh, most likely he was, he was a Nazi sympathizer and things like this, but I mean, you know, this is kind of the situation he grew up. I think he was more of an opportunist. You know, he had, he had dedicated some of his first books to Husserl and then removed those dedications because Husserl was Jewish. And so when the, you know, before the war and then removed them and then after the war, put them back in. So he's kind of one of those, I mean, you know, he, he is what he is. He, he, right. he did it to keep his job and things like that, but he was really, um, Probably his most famous work is Being in Time, Sein und Zeit. And uh, it talks about, uh, you know, again, being and uh, talking about time and how things come into being. I mean, it's, it's one of his seminal works. He hits a lot of things. It's, uh, if you're ever going to study Martin Heidegger, you will, you will study Being in Time. Okay. Um, now, I use, uh, he does have, he has a book on technology, but I use his little essay because it really is more of a, uh, a sort of a, 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 a concise work on on technology from him versus the book. The book obviously goes into more details of things that he wrote, but I like his little essay concerning technology, uh, the question concerning technology, I think it's called. And uh, in this, this is where he begins to look at the, there's a problem. Um, you know, most likely he is seeing this during war or post-war, and he's looking at what's happened to everything. And he's seeing that even then at you know, in the, in the, in the forties and fifties, technology is getting out of hand. Um, and it's not technological things. Again, it's not, you know, the, the cars and the, the, you know, for us, the laptops and the computers and the cell phones and all this kind of stuff. It's the attitude behind it. And so for him, he's going to look at the, the attitude that goes in this and he's going to do it by, you know, examining those things, but he's trying to get to what's really behind it. Okay. That's his phenomenological take on it. And once he gets this idea of what's behind it, then he says, 
there is the problem. We, you know, we have a problem there now because of this. So for him, the essence of technology is that attitude of everything is what he calls standing reserve. You know, okay. everything is a standing reserve. It's ready for me when I need it. It's there. Uh, and that's kind of the attitude. So we look at nature and we approach it like, well, that's made for me. This is not, it's not the dominion that we've been given. It's more domination. Uh, okay. And so this idea of, uh, and he brings up, I mean, he brings up, he does a lot of the work that, that you know, in, in coming to an understanding of this uh, as a problem. And he says, you know, the problem is we, we de- dehumanize, we get rid of everything because everything becomes part of the network. You know, everything becomes important. The reason I have this is because it provides something for, for X, which provides something for Y, which provides something for Z, which gets me something. And so uh, I just I just recognize that, you know, like the, the hamburger is already pre-cut in those slabs. That's it. I don't I don't think of the whole network that goes behind it of raising cattle and the slaughterhouse and all this kind of stuff. I don't think of all that interdependent network. But if that network falls down, I don't have food because I have no idea how to raise cattle and I couldn't butcher a cow to save my life. Uh, things like this. I mean, I'm lost in this. And so this is, again, him looking at it through the, the eyes of somebody in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. But we could see the same thing here. I mean, uh, I know plenty of people who are learning how to program computers, but they don't know what the computer is. Hmm. You know, they can learn Java and HTML, but, you know, all of a sudden, if the whole thing, you get the blue screen of death, you have no idea. I can't do anything with it. All of a sudden, you know, what's, what's a DOS prompt and how do I get to the, the bus in there and things like this? You know, it's like my uncle who used to work in, um, in mainframe computers. You know, hardly anybody ever deals with mainframe computers because it's all about the little programming, but he's the guy that knew it. And so he would always, you know, even if they laid him off, they would, he would always have a job the next day because yeah. everybody needs somebody right. to get, you know, the mainframe because that's a big black box mystery. I have no idea what goes on in there. I just program and say, you know, enter, and it works. But I have no idea how it works. So you are now a part of that network, but you don't even know it. Hmm. And you depend on a network that you can't even recognize. And so he's saying uh, what happens is then that this becomes a way of everything coming into existence. So now he's talking about, you know, existential language, This, this idea of, how does something come into existence? How do I look at something and its origin? No longer is its origin. It's created. You know, like I, I can look at another person. My favorite uh, thing that, I, that kind of struck me is this, this idea of it, you know, back in the 50s, in the 40s, the department used to be called personnel. Now it's human resources. Human resources, yeah. Yeah. It's like I'm going to shovel some men over there and shovel some <laughs> men over there, some women over there. I need some to shovel some folks over there because that's, you know, we're now not even persons. We're not personnel anymore. We're resources. Mm-hmm. And so just that attitude right there is telling you that, okay, I only exist to make the company run. I exist to make the company, and if I need to be over here, then human resources will move me to that direction. And I, I, I have lost my humanity. I exist to keep the machine running. Mm. So, so, I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, and it sounds like there's, I mean, that's really, I mean, there's so many things we could pull out of that. I mean, we could 
Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there's, I mean, it's a lot of capital sins involved here. We see pride, we see usury, we see ob objectification. I mean, there's, there's a lot of problems I see coming from that. I also see your background in engineering, looking at this problem. But what mm -hmm. is St. Thomas Aquinas, who's this medieval scholastic, what, what relevant, what, what does he have to contribute to this conversation? Well, what Thomas Aquinas was tweeting to Occam and other folks, no, uh, I mean, he's, I mean, keep in mind, technology has been around forever. Technology is just, you know, by definition, it's just the things that we've made. Now, at the end of Heidegger's um, essay, he says the way around it is by pondering nature and poetry and things like this. And he kind of leaves it there because he says the idea of continue questioning which left me, you know, sort of unsatisfied. Questioning what? What should I question and how should I question it? Hmm. But this is where uh, I bring in Thomas Aquinas, <clears throat> because there's something about nature that Heidegger says will break us free from this technological attitude. Okay. And I thought, okay, that's I mean, interesting. Now he just leaves you to figure out what it is. <laughs> so for me, I'm coming at this medieval side, and, and I think he's coming at the problem from the opposite direction, because Thomas Aquinas has this understanding of how things exist, and he's coming from the Catholic perspective. He's, you know, we are created. And how is it that we're created? Well, we are, I'm an essence. You know, I am the essence of who I am. But I have no existence unless I participate in God's existence. You know, God is the, he has gifted me existence. And in the Latin, that's esse, E-S-S-E, esse. So it's which literally means to be. So we share in the to be of God. So God grants us a to be. The minute we are conceived, the to be happens. And he gives us a soul, and he, and he, he makes us live. Hmm. And he does this with everything in creation. And so, I mean, in this way, you can kind of see how everything in creation depends on God to maintain its existence. Because if God says, you know, I'm no longer sharing my to be, goodbye. Hmm. You know, you, you disappear. Um, and that to be is also linked with God's love, because for God to be is love, you know, and that's the thing. So if God, if you exist, that means God loves you. And if you ever doubt or ever question if God loves you, then look at your hand in front of your face. You exist. He loves you. Right. Uh, and so with this, we begin to get this idea of, um, I moved over to Thomas's idea of beauty. And the good and the true, these are the transcendentals, as they call them. Right. You know, we look for the true, the good, and the beautiful and things. And when you look at the good and the beautiful, they're interconnected. And he actually says that, um, you know, everything that God made is good, which is not unique to Thomas Aquinas. That's the scriptures. You know, he made it, and it was good. Right. Now, now, so Thomas is like, so wait a minute, how is it possible that everything is good, even though I see bad people? Because we're good in a certain sense. We're good enough that God has granted us existence, which means, in a sense, we're perfect at being who we are. So we're good. And part of that good is, um, is beauty, because you're beautiful. Um, so he connects goodness and being, and he says, like, quite literally, he says, goodness and being are really the same. They differ only in idea. So, they're, so if you're good, if you exist, then you're good. All right. So then we make that next step. So goodness, uh, you know, he's, he's talking about, you know, he pulls from Aristotle. Goodness is what we all desire. I'm looking for the good. You know, everything we do, we're doing for the good. 
real or perceived. So that's the thing. I mean, uh, you know, if I'm going to go on your show, I know that that's a good thing. If you made the show, that's a good thing. If you if you want to go out and you want to have a uh, what was it, a Manhattan or a Tom Collins? What were you having? Old, Old fashioned. fashioned. Yeah, so there we go. I don't know. I just I'd go through all my bartending stuff, but, you know, whatever it is. Uh, Long Island iced tea, um, which apparently you can't have in Long Island because you're not allowed to be out there and drinking at a restaurant. Anyway, um, so this idea, you know, that this is something you're doing it for a good. You know, you don't do something because it's, you think it's bad. You think there's something good about it. Right. So that's what we all desire. Now, he kicks over and says that other transcendental beautiful is something that's to be desired as though seen. So something beautiful is desirable as seen. So I can see something as beautiful. And so that's a connection. We've got a good connected to beautiful, good connected to being. And so there's something about existing that's beautiful. And when you look at this in the Latin, uh, he calls this, this beauty, it has an element of, of what's called as claritas or clarity. Uh, it says beauty contains, you know, it's three things. First is integrity or perfection, um, proportion or harmony, and then brightness or clarity. Those three things mark the condition for something to be beautiful. And so since everything good is beautiful and everything that exists is good, everything that exists has this clarity or claritas, which can also be translated as radiance. So what I'm looking at is I'm thinking everything created has this radiance so it's actually shining forth something that catches your eye it's like a beacon you know sometimes if you're out there and all of a sudden this light comes up you're drawn to it kind of like a moth to the moon and so i think this is what heidegger has stumbled on it's this claritas of all created essence of all the created things out there and so when you do that what it does is it kicks you through that, that chain of events. And I'm thinking, okay, it has radiance because it's beautiful, because it's good, because it exists, but it comes in existence because of God. So nature is radiating. I mean, literally just spraying out all over the place, um, like, like 5G out there. If you want to put technological <laughs> on it, it's out there, and it's drawing our gaze to it. So something like the beautiful, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, even in Ohio, we have deer that just kind of come across the lawn right you know they'll walk out because we we live near a, a a creek and there's some some woods there and everybody will literally stop i just ooh, it's a deer and we'll just watch it out the window <laughs> the deer isn't doing it the deer is like i gotta get across this because my family's over there but i'm just watching it like it's you know it's a ballet put on just for me to see yeah and everybody's like that you know um, even the hunter can appreciate the beauty of the deer because there's something about it that's just that's drawing your gaze. And I think that's what Heidegger has tapped into when it says that's how you break out of this technological attitude. Not everything is yours. Not everything is for your use. Mm. And you didn't create it. Now You have to recognize. I was saying, and we're talking about... Um... Dr. Michael Fay here on Guadalupe Radio Network, on the David O'Grey Show, Voicing Truth and Reason. Talking about his paper, um, God and Technology. Um, but is 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 Heidegger is he influenced by communism in his thought? Um, in some areas, yeah. His philosophy of right, as he calls it, his philosophy of of government. Um, it's it's more. I'm trying to think. You know, he's he's probably. 
I wouldn't. I don't. I don't know about communist, possibly fascism. Yeah. I mean, with communist overtones and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think so. You know, his politics get all weird. Like I said, you know, he's more of an opportunist. Yeah, but, but when, when he's he gets down at, to his. But when he's looking at these mm-hmm. things, like the you know nature, and, and he's seeing that we we have a disordered, disordered use of these things. We're not. They're not ordered how they ought to be. You know, because we're we're taking them in as possessions, as we as they belong to us. He's he's not influenced in fascism. He's not saying that's community property. No, no. I think okay. I think what he's purely going at is how do we understand how things exist. Okay. How do okay. I look at? I mean, he literally uses the phrase "the presenting," uh, in a sense of how is something made present to us. And again, it's more of a phenomenological uh, look at things. So I think in this particular in this particular uh, you know in his talks on technology, I think he's really getting at a point of how we see the way things are. Okay. And so I I, I don't think he's going to go for this you know this land is your land this land is my land kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, uh, you know, and, and you probably could play something into that, but I think he's more lamenting how we, uh, how we see things coming into being, uh, and we don't see them coming into being as in their own right anymore. You know, if I find, if I find a, you know, I'm, 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 I'm hiking and I find this beautiful cave, all of a sudden the technological attitude is like, Ooh, I wonder if there's diamonds in it. I wonder if there's mm. gold in it. I want you know, I'm going to start. I'm going to to strip it of things because it now exists for me, mm-hmm. rather than just sitting back and looking at the beauty of a cave. And and there yeah. is a, such a thing, I suppose. You can find beautiful caves. Yeah, yeah. Whenever you talk about cave, I think about when we were in class, and you know, then you're going to jump into Plato, right? You know, this. this yes. That's the whole thing with the cave. Let's talk about the cave. <laughs> right, but um. But looking at some of the things that's going on today, Dr. Fag, and you look at um, how technology is, I mean, what were you seeing back in 2016? Because um, this, obviously, this, this this paper of yours has aged very well. Because there's some things that's going on today with how we're starting to abuse. Internet's already been abused. I mean, the number one website on the internet is always porn, right? So we're always, yeah. we're always abusing technology in that sense, especially the internet. But when it comes to this blacklisting and this censoring and this this pushing people off, pushing their voices off, how does that? How does how does your your, your paper? Um, what does it have to say? These conversations with Aquinas and Heidegger. How, what do they have to say about what's going on today? I think a lot of it it ties into a sense of uh, where the general populace is when it comes to this technological attitude. One of the things that Heidegger brings out is the fact that we're just not aware of it. And so the, the, the ubiquity of you know, Amazon Web Services, the ubiquity of Google, you know, the fact that they're in everywhere, hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to have uh, an on-ramp to the Internet if you're a service. You know, this is what happened to Parler. You know, Parler wanted to get uh, its own thing, but Amazon Web Service who has the server farm, who has all this stuff to get you onto the internet. They said, no, Amazon doesn't want you on there. And so if Amazon doesn't want you off, you're not on. You have to, you know, it's like, well, it's a private company. It can do its own thing. And, uh, you know, well, that's true. But, you know, let's say the, the trucking companies are also private companies. If they decided to stop delivering food to New York, <laughs> I believe people would be upset. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the thing. But I think what's happened is that you know, the big tech overlords essentially have figured out that people are unaware. 
and they just keep going because what they're doing is they're 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 pushing the network. You know, I I have made it a point to make sure that I don't have a smart anything. My smartphone and it's still kind of a mm, mildly smartphone. It's more of a special phone. It's kind of got things. <laughs> but, you know, I don't have a smart home. I'm always fascinated that people like, oh, I've got this, you know, the, the ring and the smart door locks and the smart toaster. I'm like, someone's going to hack your house. <laughs> uh, because, you know, this, this idea of this, you, the ubiquity of it all, it's always around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's very 1984. And this idea that there's always something to surveil you with. You know, it used to be a, a, a key thing that you would find in a lot of the police shows back in the 90s was, well, let's get, uh, let's get the, you know, the, the security cam footage. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, you know, police can just, just, I'll get footage from your doorbell. I'll get footage from everybody's doorbell, and I can piece this together. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that, uh, that, that big tech is saying, oh, no, it's just innocent things it makes your life worthwhile so once again lulling you into stay in the matrix stay in stay in the network don't recognize anything about the network there's you know there's don't you know don't be bothered by the man behind the curtain yeah yeah. and so what's happened is all of a sudden we've seen in this last these last few months just not to get too political but we've seen big tech flex the muscles Mm -hmm, because now mm -hmm. they can do it and and in many ways we've let them do it you know, we've let, I like the smart, oh, I like this. I got an extra app. I got a new app. I got an app implanted in my neck to tell everybody how my blood pressure is going. You know, this kind of stuff. And what I don't understand is why don't you see this as dangerous? You know, uh, same thing with cloud computing. Whenever you see cloud, you should think somebody else's computer. Because exactly. that's exactly what it is. Exactly, exactly. It's, not, it's, not, it's not literally in the clouds. It's on somebody else's computer, and if it's someone somebody else's computer, then they can look through it. That's they that's, can do stuff with it, right? And but but how do we how do we would it would it in your paper would it did you offer any constructs about how do we break free? Is is just the matter? Is it going back to the essence of the very thing and realizing what it was created for? Is it more like is Aristotle like as Aristotle? He's going to look at the the yeah. thing itself and say, okay, what was it? What, what was this thing created? Well, for? I mean. I, I, the, the solution that I give was, was one for more of an individual. I mean, to, to truly break yourself from this, um, you know, start a practice of contemplation. You know, this is, what, this is what Thomas, look at something beautiful and look at something natural. And if you look at a tree, I've got this big, huge tree outside my window here, and I look at it and I think, I didn't make it. You know, and what it's going to do is the idea is to decenter the self. Because in the network, I'm always the center. Because in many ways, nobody's the center, but I'm always the center because it's there for me. I can, go, I can go to Walmart right now and pick up any number of things that I probably don't need, but it's there for me, and they've got 20 of them. <laughs> and so everything exists for me. And I'm not putting down Walmart. I'm not putting down this kind of thing. They've they got to make a dollar, and there are some, some things I do need. Um, and it's because I've decided I'm not going to raise my own chickens. I'm not going to raise my own cows. Um, I know some people who do, and they get eggs, and they're delicious eggs, and it's fine. Uh, I just don't have the time, yeah. you know, because I have one of those jobs that takes me away. And, you know, if I had enough money to be independently wealthy, which fascinatingly, your big tech guys have enough money that they have the farm, that they actually can go out there. I, I, uh, one of the sure. things that I always found interesting was that there's this uh, high school and school system in Silicon Valley 
where all the big tech people send their kids and they have nothing smart there. There's no it's pencil, paper, books. Right. So I'm thinking, why don't they want all this stuff? Why don't they, why don't they give their kids the iPad to go to the school in? Well, because they know. They know yeah. that there's something that might be a little off. Uh, yeah. It might be controlling. You know, and, and you know, how do we stop them from flexing their muscles? Well, you know, I, a lot of that's just don't be as dependent on them, uh, which is hard to do. It's hard to say. We've created, you know, we've got this society out there that's, that's so integral. But maybe one or two things, you know, um, and if somebody wants to help somebody else start up a server farm, you know, because, uh, again, you have to go through AWS, you know, Amazon Web Services to get the majority of that. I, I heard some time ago that the government's on that. Yeah. So, so we've, been talking music. With, we've been talking with Dr. Fake here on the David O. Gray Show, Two from Reason. Great conversation about the philosophy of, of Heidegger and Aquinas and we're going to make sure we have Dr. Fake back on soon. But this is David O'Gray's show. Um, same time next week. I look forward to conversing with you again. In between time, visit me at David O'Gray Info. But until then, until next time, remember Jesus loves you and is there for you. And live your life like salvation matters. And may the abundance of the Lord's blessings and graces and favors fall upon you and yours.